Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Time once again to bring clarity and help make sense of the world around us. Today, our host, Dr. Larry Spargermino, is answering questions. Up first, Pastor Larry is tackling the question, in our world today, why is there so much interest in the paranormal? Why all the interest in the paranormal? A recent Gallup poll shows that 32% of Americans believe in some kind of paranormal activity. The same poll reveals that 38% of the population believes that ghosts can come and visit us. Many Americans believe that people can communicate with the dead. Why all this interest in the paranormal? Television shows and movies devoted to paranormal activities such as The Ghost Whisperer, Dead Tenants, and The Sixth Sense all present the idea that hauntings, apparitions, and other paranormal activities are occurring on a regular basis. A recent book entitled Above Us Only Sky, A View of 9-11 from the Spirit World was written by medium Sarah Price. It is comprised of channeled messages from deceased victims of 9-11 and from spirit witnesses who saw the tragic events unfold on that day. It has become very popular. There are a variety of reasons for such interest. For one thing, people want to know the future. Many of the paranormal channelings purport to reveal things about the future that, if understood, can help people survive some coming catastrophe. Another reason is that many people are burned out on traditional religion. Finding that a materialistic world and life view doesn't answer all the questions of life and death, these people are turning to paranormal phenomena. Another reason for all this interest in the paranormal is the growing hostility toward biblical Christianity. The idea of sin, guilt, and blood atonement is very repugnant to our modern world. Many refuse to believe in a God who would send people to hell. A theology of spirits, including belief in reincarnation, makes much more sense to them. Moreover, biblical Christianity emphasizes objective doctrine, whereas many today do not want objective truth. They do not want to embrace an objective, historically-based faith rooted in divine authority. Mystical experiences are more appealing to them. I believe this is a sign of the times. It is tied in with the apostasy of the church and also spiritual deception that would prepare the world for the acceptance of the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks about the Antichrist. In verse 9 we are told, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Christians would do well to avoid seeking any kind of religious experience that is not endorsed by the Scriptures. It is too easy to become a casualty in the war that is being waged around us. Get your very own copy of today's teaching from Dr. Spargermino by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Pastor Larry, please come back to the microphone and let's answer one more Bible question today. What do good people and bad people have in common? They both don't give up easily. We've often heard it said, quitters don't win and winners don't quit. Bad people are quite frequently winners in promoting evil and pushing their evil agenda. Why do they often succeed in their evil designs? Well, because they don't quit. 
Ever since Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan has been trying to interfere with God's plan of rescue. God outlined his plan of rescue in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Since that time, Satan has been in a conspiracy of evil to frustrate God's deliverance of helpless sinners from Satan's clutches. In the book of Esther, there was a man by the name of Haman. He persuaded the king of Persia to execute all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Fortunately, the plan failed. Jesus was, according to his human nature, a Jew. He was the son of David. If all the Jews were killed, there would be no Jews, no King David, and, of course, no son of David. There was also a plan to murder the baby Jesus. The wise men came looking for the king of the Jews, and Herod said, I am the king of the Jews. I don't want any competition. God knew all about Satan's conspiracy and warned Joseph to take the baby Jesus and his mother Mary to Egypt. We can read of that in Matthew 2. In Matthew chapter 4, we read of the temptations of Jesus. Once again, Satan was trying to cripple and maybe destroy the plan of God. Satan tried to deter Jesus from going to the cross. Satan said he wanted Jesus to have the best, anything but the cross. Satan promised Jesus protection and food and wonders. Satan wanted to make life easy for Jesus. There was just one hurdle that Jesus had to be willing to clear. All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Matthew 4, 9. Jesus, of course, refused. Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Verse 10. This is such an important passage. It shows the danger of exploiting the promises of God. God is more interested in our character than in our comfort. On another occasion, Satan led Peter to tell Jesus not to go to the cross. Peter loved Jesus so much, he couldn't bear the thought of Jesus dying on the cross. Peter's emotions got the best of him. Jesus even called Peter Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. Jesus was saying to Peter, God's plan for me was to die on the cross. You are a hindrance to me. Satan was using Peter to interfere in God's plan. Thou art an offense unto me, Jesus said, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of man, Matthew 16, 23. Peter was the hindrance to Jesus and did not understand God's ways. Peter was acting on emotion, not on a knowledge of God's revelation. So how does Genesis 6 fit into this picture? Well, it fits perfectly if we understand what was happening. There is a conspiracy of evil taking place. Now, people don't like the word conspiracy, but it is a good word because it describes what often happens. Everything that is done at a given point in history is not done openly and publicly. Those behind the conspiracy want to keep their plans secret. They know that if it were announced publicly, then the opposition would mount up and oppose their evil plans, so they have to keep it secret. The plan is still there, but it is deliberately hidden. 
Have you ever seen an animal of prey sneak up on its victim? The element of surprise is very effective. Believing the conspiracy against God is real, that is the key in understanding Genesis 6-4 where the Bible says, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Before we get into textual matters, there is one item of importance that we should keep in mind. The Bible is perfect. Those of us who interpret it are not. That is true for me, but it is also true for those who take a different view of this passage than I do. Some might even ask, the passage is so controversial, why even read it and why even comment on it? I understand the question and the motivation of those who even ask it. Well, my answer goes back to the Bible. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 tell us that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. The Genesis 6 passage is part of the Bible and with good reason. And if it is in the Bible for a reason, whatever the reason may be, we should study it and discuss it. So, as we proceed, who are the sons of God in Genesis 6-4? We should notice that Adam was created in the likeness of God, Genesis 5-1. But Adam begat a son in his own likeness after his image, verse 3. Terminology is used by Scripture to indicate a direct relationship between the father and his son. The phrase son of is used in the New Testament. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. John 1, verse 12. Now, Genesis 6, 2 says, The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. Does the phrase, the sons of God, fit New Testament usage? Will you be the judge? Those who received Jesus Christ and believed on his name saw the daughters of men, that they were fair and came in unto them and bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. Now, how does that sound? Not very good. There are a total of 11 verses in the New Testament using the term sons of God. None fit the context of Genesis 6. So sons of God in Genesis must mean something very different than the same phrase in the New Testament. Can we be sure? Well, you decide. Let's see if sons of God in Genesis is a phrase that is interchangeable with sons of God in the New Testament. Romans 8:19 says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, how about if we read it this way? Was the earnest expectation of the creature waiting for the manifestation of those who went in unto the daughters of men who bare children who were men of renown? Of course, it doesn't make sense. Philippians 2.15 in the scripture says, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now let's try this that ye may be blameless and harmless, those who went in unto the daughters of men who bear children who were men of renown. It just doesn't work. In 1 John 3, 1, the scripture says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, 
that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now how about this? Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called those who went in unto the daughters of men who bear children who were men of renown. None of it fits, does it? Sons of God in the New Testament is not interchangeable with sons of God in the Old, especially in Genesis chapter 6. But let's try another scripture. 1 John 3, 2, and the scripture says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now let's try this variation and see if the terms are interchangeable. Beloved, now we are those who went in unto the daughters of men, who bear children who were men of renown, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. I don't have to go through all the New Testament usages of sons of God. It should be obvious that sons of God in Genesis 6 does not have the same reference as the phrase does in the New Testament. There are also those who believe that sons of God in Genesis 6 refers to the godly line of Seth. Seth was the third son of Adam and Eve and brother of Cain and Abel. According to Genesis 4.25, Seth was born after Cain murdered his brother Abel. Eve believed that God gave Seth to her as a replacement for Abel and perhaps to comfort her in her time of loss. The story of Cain's murder of the righteous seed Abel and raising up a replacement seed Seth is one of the themes of God's plan. Evil is always waging war against the righteous, but God is thwarting evil's aspirations. It was through the seed of Seth that Jesus was born. Genesis 5, 3 through 8, 1 Chronicles 1, 1, and Luke 3, 38. However, it is doubtful if the sons of God in Genesis 6 is a reference to godly people. The marriage of the sons of God to the daughters of men produced giants. Genesis 6 verse 2 says, The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Genesis 6 4 says, There were giants, in the original language the word is Nephilim, in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, supposedly the descendants of the ungodly line of Cain, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. Are we to believe that men from the godly line of Seth are the sons of God who produced the progeny of giants? If that were true, we would be able to paraphrase Genesis 6-4 in the following way. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also after that, when the descendants of Seth came in unto attractive women and bare children to them, the same children that became mighty men, which were of old men of great reputation. We would have to rightly ask, why would the human descendants of Seth produce giants? It is argued that the Sethites were godly and they were involved in marriages to attractive women who were not godly. In other words, a mixed religious marriage, as often happens even today. But would a mixed religious marriage produce giants? 
Such unions happen on a regular basis, believers marrying non-believers, but such unions do not produce unusual offspring. It would appear that the sons of God are neither men from the godly line of Seth, nor are they representatives of any godly group of beings that were on earth in those days. Rather, they were fallen angelic spirits who produced evil on the earth and great wickedness. Those who argue that the sons of God could not be angels because Mark 12:25 indicates that the angels do not marry and do not have children. We should answer that Mark 12:25 is speaking about the angels which are in heaven. This does not argue against the beings mentioned in Genesis 6, 2, and 4 as being angels because what is recorded in Genesis is not about angelic activity in heaven by redeemed angels, but about an unnatural union on earth that produces great evil. The interpretation of the phrase, the sons of God as angelic beings, has support from Scripture as the phrase is used in Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.7. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Job 2.1 says, Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. In Job 38.6 and 7, where the context is God's confrontation with Job involving the Lord's addressing questions to Job, we read, Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, now listen to this, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Angelic beings are sexless beings and never spoken of as female, but fallen angels can, in a manner that is incomprehensible to man in the natural realm, assume maleness and impregnate human females. Though they are not supernatural, in the sense that only God does that which is truly supernatural, Fallen angels and demonic beings can do that which is superhuman. For Bible-believing Christians, none of this should be surprising. We do believe in spiritual warfare. The Bible makes it clear that we are not wrestling with flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.12. And, as I have mentioned earlier, there has been a satanic conspiracy to derail God's plan of rescue. Taking a naturalistic interpretation of the Genesis 6 passage just does not do the passage justice, nor does it line up with the teachings of the Bible. 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, now take note of those words, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness. Now, is there any reference in the Bible to angels that sinned? The note in the Henry Morris Study Bible says this, quote, There are previous references in the Bible to the sin of Satan, but none to the angels that sinned except in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where the sons of God took control of human women and their progeny. According to Jude 6, they left their own habitation in the heavens seeking to corrupt all flesh on earth. Jude verse 7 adds, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. 
The sexual nature of the events in Sodom and Gomorrah are perceived by Jude to be analogous situations. Friends, we need to remember that Genesis 6 is not the only record of giants. In Deuteronomy 2, 10 and 11, we read, The Amims dwelt therein in times past, a great people, and many, and tall, as the Anakims, which were also accounted giants. But the Moabites called them Amims. In Deuteronomy 3.11, we read of, quote, Og, king of Bashan, of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Nine cubits, that's more than 13 feet, was the length thereof, and four cubits, that is six feet, the breadth of it after the cubit of a man. Further references to giants are found in Joshua 11, 21 and 22, and also chapter 14, 12, and also verse 15. So this raises an interesting question. How do we account for the presence of giants after the flood? Well, there are two possibilities. One is that the flood of Noah was local and did not destroy all of the giants that existed at the time. Since the evidence seems to indicate that the flood was universal, I would opt for the second possibility. What happened in Genesis 6-4 happened again in later times. Fallen angels went in unto the daughters of men, again producing other clans of giants. That also raises another significant question. Could that happen again in the future? Henry Morris, who is rightly called the father of creation science, sees the confusion over the Genesis 6 passages growing out of the conflict between two different worldviews, a naturalistic and supernaturalistic interpretation of recorded events, which is basically what I see in the conflict of views, two different worldviews. In his book, The Genesis Record, pages 164 and 165, we read where Dr. Morris is referring to Genesis 6, 1, 2, and 4, and I quote him, One's first reaction to this passage and the standard interpretation of the liberals is to think of the fairy tales of antiquity, the legends of ogres and dragons and the myths of the gods consorting with men, and then to dismiss the entire story as legend and superstition. On the other hand, modern Christians have often attempted to make the story more palatable intellectually by explaining the sons of God as Sethites and the daughters of men as Cainites, with their union representing the breaking down of the wall of separation between believers and unbelievers. Another possible interpretation which avoids supernaturalistic implications is that the phrase sons of God refer to kings and nobles, in which case the commingling so described is merely an account of royalty marrying commoners. Neither of these naturalistic interpretations, however, explain why the progeny of such unions would be giants or why they would lead to universal corruption and violence, close quotes. Dr. Merileth Unger, who had an amazing understanding of biblical Hebrew, and had a high proficiency in translating ancient language texts, wrote Unger's commentary on the Old Testament. On page 37, he writes, and I quote him, There were giants in the earth. Literally, it was then that the Nephilim appeared on earth. The Nephilim, meaning fallen ones, were the spirit, human, angelic, demon, offspring of the sons of God, angels, and daughters of men, human females. The King James rendering giants of the Hebrew Nephilim 
reflects the Septuagint rendering gigantes. The thought of it is spirit beings, fallen angels, demonic powers, cohabiting with women of the human race, producing what later became known in pagan mythologies as demigods, partly human and partly superhuman. Close quotes. The biblical account is not pagan mythology, but accurate revelation from God describing what actually happened in the ancient world. Later mythology developed the Titans, partly superhuman giants. Greek mythology, Hesiod, Pseudo-Apollodorus recalls such beings. Zeus, one of the great gods of mythology, had to battle with a group of giants known as Titans. Phoenician lore, which precedes Greek mythology, also echoes a similar tradition. Very ancient Hittite texts containing Hurrian myths have been discovered that carry the idea back even earlier to the historical source of all of this in the divinely revealed facts given in Genesis chapter 6. Gilgamesh, the hero of the Babylonian flood story, was himself a demigod, that is, partly human, partly divine, that is, superhuman. Research has shown that almost every culture has a flood story that bears a skeleton of what the Bible reveals about the flood of Noah. Only the biblical account is clearly monotheistic. The other accounts, originating from polytheistic sources, naturally reveal polytheism. Nevertheless, all these flood stories are clearly derived from the biblical prototype. In the same way, pagan mythology can be traced back to its biblical prototype found in Genesis 6. The early chapters of Genesis tell us of a cosmic revolt against God. Pain and suffering have entered Eden. In Genesis 3.15, which was quoted earlier in this study, in the process of crushing Satan's head, the heel of the woman's seed will be bruised. In order to fix the problem, there will be suffering, a reference to the crucifixion of Christ, which will be endured by the seed of the woman. The text literally says, he shall bruise your head, indicating that a male member of the human race will deliver a fatal and final blow to the serpent. This crushing blow will not come, however, without the woman's seed also receiving a wound, although not a final one, on his heel. From the very beginning of the Bible, we learn of the reality of spiritual warfare growing out of Satan's doomed attempt to establish himself as Lord and King of the universe. It is important that we raise the issue of the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. Seed meaning descendant of the woman. In this case, of course, Jesus Christ. What happens to the bloodline is extremely important, especially in light of God's promise to bring deliverance through the special descendant. It is not accidental that Genesis 6.9 speaks of Noah as, quote, a just man and perfect in his generations, close quotes. The purity of the bloodline becomes progressively more important, especially as we realize that Noah is in the line of Jesus Christ. Dr. Michael Heiser's observation is most important when he writes, quote, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is far from being peripheral in importance. It furthers the theme of conflict between divine rebels, the seed of the Nakash, that is the serpent, and humanity that will impede the progress of Eden's restoration, and that's from the Unseen Realm 109. 
This brings another issue that has recently arisen. Is the supernatural view of the Genesis 6 passage just more sensationalistic hype and nothing more than the great end-time distraction? Well, I think none of that is true because I think what we have here is a very, very clear picture of an eruption of demonic and satanic activity on the face of the earth. In our resource center today, we're offering Sons of God and the Nephilim, Volume 1 and 2 by Mac Dominic. These DVDs provide answers for those who seek the truth. Get both Volume 1 and 2 for a gift of $35 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. You can also order these DVDs online, swrc.com. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.